was wonderful. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 2. And uh, boy, that was art through 2,000 years. And uh, it was wonderful. Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we commit our time to God. And uh, uh, All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you don't belong to one nation, one culture, one social class, but you are, Lord Jesus, the Lord of all the earth, of every tribe and tongue and language that exists. And we bless you as a Lord this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not left a picture of yourself lest we create a graven image and worship that. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you transcend all that and you unite a people across culture, race, social class, Lord, ethnicity, and you bring us together under your lordship to bow before you all on equal footing. And as we look, Lord, at this passage, how you called Jewish people and Gentiles from Iraq who were astrologers and poor shepherds and wealthy magi and even King Herod was given an invite to the first Christmas to thank you, Lord, that everybody's invited to bow before you as Lord. And so we do this morning. We invite you to speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Uh, now, remember last week I mentioned, that I'm going to do it again this week, that uh, if you don't do something with what you hear in the next four, 48 to 72 hours, that you will probably forget everything I said by Thursday. So uh, there's been a lot of nice ideas. So I'm going to ask that you're going to think about, what do I do with all this uh, this week as I go into Christmas? And last week we talked about how God put Herod and Jesus on the stage at the same time. And uh, that there was a lesson in that. There was something that we were to capture. And so today what I'm going to try to do is take, really get the second part of last week's message and one, what I would consider staggering application, which I pray God will enable us to receive and absorb as I've really wrestled in being able to even get it myself because of the depth of all of its implications for my life and our lives and what Christianity is all about. So let's begin reading chapter one, uh, chapter two, I'm sorry, of Matthew. And I want to read a few verses again just to give you a context of that first Christmas uh, in contrasting Jesus and Herod. All right? Remember, Herod was king of the Jews for 37 years. And at a time when this was uh, happening, he's really at the end of his 37-year reign. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, underline that verse, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And so when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. So then verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now that you know a little bit about Herod, you know how outrageous that was that he would go and worship. And uh, then in verse, nine, six, verse uh, 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he went back home. He was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. All right, a little bit of review from last week because I want you to get the picture of Herod again. 
Herod was called king of the Jews. 37 years ruled there. He was an Edomite, half a Jew, or sometimes he's called Edomian, depends on the time in history, uh, but uh, he was a half a Jew, uh, actually a descendant of Esau, going back to, remember Jacob and Esau, that whole story. Uh, he was the greatest king the Mideast had ever known up to that time, uh, outside of David and Solomon. Uh, he was ruthless, he was cruel, he was paranoid. Uh, we'd have a lot of pathology to put on him today. Uh, he, he was very concerned about his power and holding on to it. He loved power, he loved control, he loved wealth, he loved everything big. He loved being king. And so anybody that even came close to threatening him as the king, he basically liquidated them. And I mentioned last week, the high priest of the Jews, he was threatened by him, didn't like the fact this guy had so much power, so he had him drowned. His wife's brother got concerned about him, killed him. Had two oldest sons early in his life that were destined for the throne. He had them killed as well. He was concerned they were going to overthrow him before he actually died. And then right before, his five days before he died, he actually killed the next son in, in line, lest he would become king too. And uh, as Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor of all the empires, said and wrote, I would rather be Herod's pig than his family, for the pigs have a better chance of living. And it gives you a sense, again, of the kind of person Herod was. Uh, it, it is it's clear he killed tens of thousands of people during his 37-year-old, 37-year reign. And again, some scholars estimate he may have killed as many as a million people. And if you've re read about Russia under the... Uh, Communist rule, Stalin and the Gulag by Solzhenitsyn, it gives you a feel, this feeling of spies everywhere. There were no public assemblies that were gathered, that were allowed because of threats to his rule. But uh, he was, we'd call a madman today. And he had that place of kingship for a long time. And the Jews were under this guy uh, during the whole life of Jesus. Now, the Romans let him do this because he was a he had a great military, had a lot of mercenaries, had his own little army there, and he kept peace in this Jewish part of the empire. So the Romans liked him and allowed him to keep doing his mad things. At the same time, he was a builder. He was, a, he was the, I don't know, you know, I, you know, I say Donald Trump of our day, Robert Moses. I don't really, we don't really have builders today like, like that. But he, he built all over what we would consider the Mideast of that day. And, and uh, again, archaeologists, if you go on tours of Israel, you will see his buildings. Everything from entire cities like Caesarea he built to Masada to Pat. He had nine different palaces around Israel, and he actually built one that was only two to three miles away from Bethlehem, and that was his biggest palace, 22 stories high, and there's pictures of it, and you see in the history books, and it was amazing. And he loved big, lavish hot baths and cold baths and swimming pools. And he, again, he, he was a... He was a uh, he was very creative and, and had his own building style, Herodian stones, and, and, uh, but he liked things massive. He's the one responsible for what we consider the temple today, the second temple, the Herodian temple. The Wailing Wall is the foundation with these massive stones that weigh um, tons. And one of the great wonders of the world is how he ever built these buildings without cranes. So he was quite a guy. And uh, on top of that, he was one of the richest men on earth at the time, if not the richest man that ever lived of all time, which is one of the great controversies where he got all this wealth from. So that's Herod, this, this large, imposing, ruthless king on stage. And he is, it says in verse 2, he is king, he is the king uh, in Judea. And his title actually is king of the Jews. Now, on stage at the same time is born in Bethlehem, this little baby Jesus. And uh, Bethlehem was a small village of 100 to 300 people, 
very tiny. And uh, there Jesus was born in a manger. And I said last week, it was really a cave. And mo most mangers were, were, were for the animals, and they were generally placed in coverings to be protected from the weather. Smelly places with lots of excrement, dark. And uh, that's where they placed Jesus, in a manger to be born. And so here's Jesus, the king, born in a cave, only a few miles away from this 22-story, luxurious, massive palace, which was his, actually his main residence, which is the place where the Magi visited. And there's King Herod, and here in the manger in the cave is King Jesus. And the contrast is to strike you. It's to knock you over. And that's why Herod's very interested when the Magi come and said, oh, the king of the Jews has been born. Oh, really? And he wants to know where this king is. And he sends out the troops and kills every baby under two years old. That was nothing unusual for him. That was just part of life. So here's the Messiah, the king born in the cave, small and weak. God made flesh. It's unfathomable that God's in the cave and Herod's in the palace with all of his glory and all of his comfort. And, uh, but here's the Messiah, the eternal Word of God entering out of eternity and entering time and space and becoming one of us. And uh, very hard to believe that God would do it this way. And it's really incomprehensible that this baby born in Bethlehem was God in the flesh. In fact, really everything rests on it, because if that's true, then the miracles and the resurrection, all that is easy to, 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 to go with. Once we, virgin birth, once we get to the fact that that baby is God himself being born on earth as the king of the universe. Now, remember, God didn't come as a soldier, as a mighty warrior, didn't come as an invincible angel. God did not come as a conqueror, didn't come as Caesar. He came, he chose to come as, uh, not a, a, as a Jew, an oppressed people, a helpless human baby, unable to do anything more than lie there, wiggle. Here was the maker, is a quote, Max Lucado, he says it very well. Here's the maker of all things, shrunk down, 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 so small as to become a single fertilized egg, an egg that would enlarge into a fetus inside of a nervous teenager. The God who roared, who could order empires and armies around like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food. Eternity enters time. And so we have King Herod over here, and we've got King Jesus, small, fragile, obscure, hidden, unknown, and dependent over here. And the more you think about it, if you step back and you just reflect on it, the more staggering it is. Because I want to be in the palace. I don't want to be in the cave. But as mentioned last week, things are not as they appear to be. Herod's really not the king. Jesus is the king. And the call of Christmas is to go to the cave and to worship King Jesus and to basically turn our back on Herod. So Herod sat in one of the biggest palaces in the world with all that comfort, and he's not the king at all. Jesus is. And so where are you going to go this Christmas? The palace or the cave? Now, I trust some of you did some things after last week's message in terms of how you 
are going about this Christmas. But I want to make just one application today, and I want, I'm going to try to unravel it by the grace of God, and we're going to try to apply it and live it. And I want you to go down, I want you to write the point down, and, and this is, this is I, I, I think, what it means to go to the cave, and what it means for us to celebrate Christmas God's way. And I'm summarizing it as to choose weakness in order to love. And I'm going to unpack that for you, the rest of the message here. Uh, Herod had no intention of being weak. Herod loved being king. He, he, he loved to exercise power. He had an army to do that. He built these great fortresses. He was manipulative. He lied. He murdered people. Uh, he destroyed his own fa- family rather than be weak. And any, any uh, moment where he could possibly be weakened, he lashed out and it went on the attack. And uh, he was fiercely competitive, and he was going to be number one. That's kind of the way our world works. But today, Jesus in the cave chooses to be weak in order to love. In fact, the reason we're here today in this room is because of the choice he made. And it's really the call of the Christian life, what it's really all about. It's the very opposite of what the world is going on around us. In fact, it's so radical. I I pray for a revelation. You need new glasses to see this. You need spiritual discernment. You need some, you need a, really, it's a revelation to get this image and this, rep, this truth of Jesus in the cave in weakness in order to love humanity over and against Herod in the palace. And uh, Christmas has to do with seeing God in the flesh in baby Jesus. And the world, it says in John 1, did not see it and rejected Jesus. His own did not receive him. They couldn't see it. And I tell you, it's very hard to see Jesus even today with all that's going on around us. And even in Christian circles, it is very difficult to see and worship the real and living Jesus who was born in a cave and to go that direction. But let me just try to unpack it a bit, because it does go against everything I've learned and you've learned. It goes against everything you learned in your family growing up, probably. It definitely goes against everything you learned in school, in your education, from your teachers and professors. It goes against everything going on in the media that shouts out at us in books and shows and movies. It goes against your personal nature. Your, your, your personal likings and feelings are not going to go in this direction of weakness and the cave. In fact, you're probably not going to get a lot of encouragement from work or your friends to go this direction. And sad to say, you may not get a lot of encouragement from the church at large either because it is a downward journey. And it is not the journey most of us first choose. And, uh, you know, if you... I like things big. Our culture likes things big. We like big movie stars. We like big houses. We like big money. We like big people. We, you know, we're, in, we're drawn to them. And uh, you know, if I say to you, no, I can't be in church next week because I, I got a meeting at uh, the White House with President Bush. And I'm going to be with uh, you know, Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell. We're going we're gonna to be praying together. You say, you say, well, yeah. You look at me like, wow, that, that's impressive. You know? Or if I say, you know, this is uh, my friend Bill, Bill Gates. And... Uh, <laughs> His other two friends, Paul Allen and uh, Steve Ballmer, both from Microsoft, and just read recently that they, they were worth, at least a year ago, $140 billion. The three guys, worth more than the 43 least developed countries 
gross national product all combined. More than 600 million people. I say, oh yeah, my friend Bill. We're going to dinner next week. I mean, just, it's big, and it's something, it, it, it's impressive. I mean, we're just drawn to it. Or if I say, oh yeah, you know, I got a PhD from uh, Harvard. I, I, picked the, I picked up an extra one from Princeton on the way. You know? Oh, wow. You know, and, and that's big. And, or, you know, Michael Jordan comes in, or Shaq. He's a big guy. And, uh, but when big people physically walk in the room, we kind of just, you know, move over a bit. But they, they, they take up a lot of space and have a lot of influence. And, and they're big shots. And we're drawn to the big shots. It's just, it's, it's our culture. It's so funny, you have the biggest Christmas tree, biggest menorah, biggest service, biggest church. And we like it that way. And it's almost irresistible to go the way of big and Herod. It's just, it's versus being drawn this hard work of loving in weakness. You got, you got, you got to feel this irresistible pull in two directions. Of Herod over here in this palace that, yes, in fact, I've been living my whole life to get there. Versus this hard work of weakness and choosing weakness in order to love people. It, it, it is a powerful temptation. Now, the Magi were weak. They bow. You'll notice there in the end of your in verse, uh, at the end of the um, verse 11 and 12 in chapter 2, they choose weakness. They lay down their gifts and they worship. But the work of God is accomplished in the hiddenness of the cave. I mean, the work of God is not in the palace. It's in the cave. And it's in this weakness. Who would have ever thought that the world was going to be redeemed, was going to be loved, was going to be saved through what was happening in the weakness of that cave? Who would have ever dreamed that was the way of salvation? That was the way the world was going to get changed and not through someone like Herod with all of his resources at his disposal. And that's the way God worked through enormous, staggering weakness of coming to earth in that shape, in that form. He could have come a million different ways to communicate that the way the powers and principalities of darkness and evil would be vanquished and destroyed around us, in us, through us, would be through a stance of weakness and not human strength. And that understanding was so radical that most people missed it. They didn't see, in fact, the theology, the incarnation in Christmas is all about powerlessness. It's all about weakness. It's all about humility in a cave. And there is a, a theology that really Christmas, in a sense, lifts up to us that is all through the Bible, and it's really a theology of weakness. And we see it everywhere, from God choosing 80-year-old people like Moses to Abraham being 98, not having a kid, he's supposed to be a father of nations, to choosing magi and, who are Babylonian astrologers and shepherds who are 10-year-old girls, social outcasts, to Mary and Joseph, so poor, they had to bring the poor offering at the temple when they brought Jesus at eight, eight days old. I mean, these are the people that he's using through whom he's going to move are all the weak. And it's, it's the, the, the brilliant and not that brilliant folks didn't come to Jesus, but they had to become weak in order to come. Nobody came standing up. Everybody had to bow to get into the cave. And so the way God brings your power to an end and the world's power to an end is through weakness. And God's about making you weak. 
I know you, I don't really like that very much. But God is intentional to make you weak so that you cannot be about an illusion of propping yourself up about power, but you will be a vehicle who's weak through whom his love can flow to other people. Just the way God saved the world through this hidden, humble, weak baby, Jesus, through a cross, he disarmed the powers and principalities of the air through something as weak as a cross, in the same way God moves and saves and moves through our, the earth today through people who are weak. The very opposite of what we would expect. You know, I, I just, the, the message, 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, God chose the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. That the way God would change people's lives was through preaching the gospel of a cross. That God would change people. Paul says it's foolishness next to Plato and Aristotle and Einstein or all the great thinkers of the age. But yet that's what God chose. Through something foolish and weak to save people and change their lives. Paul wrote this, don't deceive yourselves. If anyone thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, Paul writes, he should become a fool so that really he may become wise. 1 Corinthians 3. In fact, Paul says the members of the body of Christ who are the weakest are indispensable. He goes, it's not the way you think. He goes, it's the opposite because it's through this weakness that God moves. All right, now, here's the problem. If we move in our own, our power, our power becomes a rival. It gets in the way of God. And so our own power of doing things on our own power, our own way, Herod's way, cannot coexist. And so God's intention is to get things in your life to break your power and to make you weak. That's the bad news. The good news is he loves you enough to do it. And uh, God will allow things to come into your life that are beyond your control. Things such as failures, and many of us all have them here in this room, and some, you know, failures in business, or failure in marriage, or failure in singleness, or failure in relationships. You know, it's like to go from a high-paying job to being unemployed, or a low-paying job, and the humiliation of that. Or what it's like to be emotionally fragile for whatever reasons, what's happened to you in the past, whether it's betrayals or your family or generational sin that's your product of, or cancer or mental disability or physical disability. And, and, and God allows things in our lives sometimes to make us very weak. But the issue is when these things happen, it's still the issue is what are you going to do with it? Because these things can come into your life and you still don't choose weakness. You choose to fight it. You choose to be angry. You choose to be bitter. And really, you spend your whole life trying to Say, no, I don't want to go this route. And so we spend our lives covering our shame, not getting embarrassed, being defensive, having our walls up, and being invulnerable because we don't want to be weak. We don't want to go to the cave. I want to be over here with Eric. I'm really more comfortable there. And so, you know, <laughs> approval. I like approval by people. Herod loved approval by people. You like security? Herod loved security. You like money? He loved it. Uh... Only a few went the cave, the way of the cave. You know, it's interesting because Jesus said to Peter at the end of his life, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Remember, the disciples, all they wanted to know, even at the end of Jesus' life, was Jesus, when you, when you, when you, when you resurrect, can I sit at your right hand and your left hand? They were still thinking about power. Jesus says, do you love me? Ah, yeah, I love it. Let's get on with the power. Where am I going to sit when this thing is over? Just so I know where I'm going to be. And, uh, you know, P Peter tells Jesus, you know, G Peter, you know, 
when you're older, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. You're going to die crucified upside down. So Peter's like, right. what about John? What about him over here? Where's he going to happen to him? Is he going to get it too? But the idea of choosing weakness is like, I, I don't want to even go there because it's so difficult. It's, it's the hard way of loving people. So, for example, I, I mean, one very simple application is what marks the gospel and Christians all through the ages is that we are called to choose to identify with the unimpressive people, insignificant people. I mean, I like Shaq and the Los Angeles Lakers. Not as much as I like the Knicks, but they're a nice team. But I'm called to identify with the unstrategic people, the orphans, the Bible calls them, the widows, the poor, the handicapped, the lonely, the prisoners, the elderly, the unborn, that I have structured my life in such a way that I move towards these people to love them, towards the weak, towards those who, because of whatever reasons for life, find themselves in a cave. Why do you want, why do I want a certain salary or a certain degree or a certain position? And it's a motive issue. Is it because, really, I want the approval of some people? I want them to know that I made it, that I'm, I, I've got some worth, and it's the power of this world. And I, I, want, I, I want that degree or I want that position because I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be seen as like a weak person. So I spend my life avoiding weakness and trying to get over here to be with Herod. You know, I, Henry Nouwen writes, writes, he used to be a professor at Harvard and um, Yale, and he writes in one of his books about how he says he left Harvard and Yale as a professor, and he went to live among a, a community of handicapped, mentally challenged people. And here's what he writes when he got there. He goes, the first thing that struck me when I got to this community with mentally handicapped people was that their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with any of the useful things I had done with my life. Since nobody could read my books, they, they could not impress anyone. And since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard did not mean much to them. My considerable experience proved even less valuable. When I offered, he was a Catholic priest, when I offered some meat to one of the assistants during dinner, one of the handicapped men said to me, don't give him the meat, he's a Presbyterian. But he writes about what a shock it was to be naked, to be weak for the first time in his life. And it totally changed him and his whole understanding of what it really meant to be a Christian. You know, I, I, I sometimes speak it with other pastors at pastors' meetings and conferences, and it's always a great challenge for me because generally you get up there and you tell everybody what a great, what a great guy you are and what a great church you've got. It's been called ecclesiastical pornography at times because it's all not true, but you do it anyway. And every time in this position, I, I struggle and, uh, because I have to make a choice. Do I choose weakness, which is the truth, and tell them my failures through which God worked anyway, or do I tell them about all my strengths? You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, just write that verse down. You know the verse is translated usually, your power is made perfect in weakness. 
In fact, the whole summary of 1 and 2 Corinthians is found in 2 Corinthians 12, and Paul, at the end of his life, says, I want you to understand something about the way the kingdom of God moves. You're looking at these super apostles with miracles and great ministries, and, and you're saying, healings, and these are the ones that go. I want to tell you something. My badge of greatness is my weakness. He goes, I delight in my weakness. And one scholar's translation of verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12 is this. Your power, your personal power, is brought to an end in weakness. Your power, we think your power is brought to an end in weakness. That God, the way God is going to bring your power to an end is through weakness. He is going to find ways to make you weak. In fact, the only way your power is going to be brought to an end is by weakness. And then the next verse says, Paul says, Therefore, I glory in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. The purpose of the weakness is so that the life and the glory and the power of God might rest on me and so love might go through me. So here's what it looks like very practically. You, you, um, why you don't say hi? Somebody, say something you don't, you don't like here. I noticed nobody here you don't like, but let's assume there was. And, 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 you, and you, you see them, but you're not going to say hi to them. Because by not saying hi, I have some power still. I just walk right past them. And I make, I'm making a point. I have power. It's very subtle, but it's there. Hey, I get lost asking for directions. I don't need to ask for directions. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I got my power. I'm powerful. I, I, know, I know what's going on. Think of how well you receive criticism. Hey, hey, don't get too close. I don't even know you that well to be giving me this kind of, because I got my power. I'm holding on. I'm not going the way of weakness. What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? The opposite of having to exercise power over others is now you can love them. See, here's the key. If you're trying to impress everybody, you're not thinking about loving them. All you're thinking about is holding on your own power. Herod's not thinking about loving anybody. He's thinking about himself. So the opposite of this power issue is loving people. But it's very hard to do when you're wrapped up. So, for example, you buy Christmas gifts. Well, lots of different reasons why we buy Christmas gifts, right? But it can be sometimes, I'm going to buy you, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy you Russ a big gift. So he knows that I got some power. And some of us buy a lot of big gifts. In fact, we buy, we buy big gifts for our kids, so other kids know our kids got power. <laughs> we don't want them to think that we're weak. God forbid. Sometimes some of us are very friendly and outgoing. We're, we're always talking. Talking, but we're, we're talking so that you know, we don't look weak. You know, I, I know, yeah, I'm really friendly. I'm a great guy. And, but it's all really, it's not really who we are at all. It's just kind of a defensive measure because we're, we don't want to appear weak. It's, you ever get in a conversation, you don't know what's going on, but you chime in anyway. You know. <laughs> the reason I don't want to forgive you, why? Because I don't want to, I don't want to appear, why, I can't forgive you because I'll, if I forgive you, what is that? I'm weak. If I let it go, then you may have some power over me. And that's not going to happen. So I'm not going to forgive you either. And some of us hold on to bitterness to, to the day we die. In fact, we don't want to be weak before God. God allows difficulty and tragedy in our lives. We say, you know what, God, you're not getting me on this one. I'm not going to be weak to you. Herod had no intention of being weak. Do you think he was going to leave that palace and come and be weak and bow before a baby who's going to be the king of the Jews? Do you realize how, how staggering this life is? how totally different than what's going on outside it means to follow Jesus to a cave. It is to choose weakness in order to love people. It's the opposite of worldly power that we're all surrounded by every day. 
you know, I'm at the dinner table, for example, and I, I'll be at the dinner table with family in a couple days, <clears throat> and uh, of course they won't ask me to pray, God forbid. I won't say anything. I'll be cool. And conversation will be going around, but I don't have to talk all the time or give my opinion about things I don't agree with to exert my power. Hey, I'm here! It's okay. I mean, the time may come. Or when somebody misunderstands you, I don't like being misunderstood, do you? It's a horrible thing. So what do we do? We go and we make it very clear that it's not true about me. We want everybody to know it's not true. We defend ourselves. God forbid we appear weak. Imagine if Jesus went after every person who had an opinion about him, lest he look weak. The rumors, God structured in such a way that the Lord was born to a teenage girl who wasn't married. The whole life he had this cloud of being illegitimate around him. Fourth-class citizen. He had to flee to Africa as a refugee, as a baby, to survive. As it says in the text here, it's only when Herod died, verse 19, that he could get, when Herod died, then he could go back to home. The problem is that power, when you go the route of power, your soul shrinks. But when you go the way of weakness, your soul enlarges. But the horrible thing is it's so hard to go the way of weakness that we just go the way of the world, say, yeah, it looks good. I want, everybody to, I want everybody to think well of me. Why aren't we vulnerable? Why is it so hard for us to look at our stuff and our sin and our stuff and let God get in there? Why is it so difficult to be open to people about our weaknesses and, 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 and shortcomings and failures? Why? Because we don't want to look weak. So what do we do? Everything's super. Praising him again, forever. But sometimes some of us, we, we say, we're going to be weak. I'll be weak. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be nice to this person I don't like. For about a day and then they don't reciprocate we're done doesn't work bad methodology I mean I, I found myself disciplining my kids because of power I discipline them because I don't want you to think I'm a bad parent I mean it's right to discipline our kids but why am I doing it because a kids threatening my power base or because I want to see them grow up in godliness in Christ well, I'm saying Christmas touches everything about weakness is the way of God for bringing salvation to the earth the way that you will love people in Jesus' name is through weakness, not strength. It is radically different than every message shouting at you from birth, your natural flesh, the schools, the media, everything shouting at you. The temptation is to power. I feel it. You feel it. I give up my right to have to be better than you. That's a pretty big right to give up. To be better, richer, smarter than anybody. And I'm just going to choose weakness in order to love you and love people. You know, praying and spiritual disciplines are really about weakness. You know, prayer, praying is a very weak thing to do. I mean, let's face it, the reason we don't pray is because the bottom line, we don't pray because I can do it myself. I'm doing just fine, God. Things are going well, why pray? Crisis, I'll pray. Right now, things are cruising. And really, prayer is an act of weakness. Reading the Bible is an act of weakness. Worship is an act of weakness. Because you're saying, I can't, I need you. That's why I say, if your quiet times and reading the Bible is boring, 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 it's okay. The fact that you even gave it a shot for 15 minutes or half an hour, you made a statement to God, I need you. I'm dependent, I'm weak. That alone was worth the whole half an hour. Even if you get one, even if you read 30 verses, you didn't get one, one, one thing out of it. Emma who's here somewhere, was talking to Jerry and I about her, how God has been recovering and uncovering her theology. 
and redoing her theology. And I, she told, she gave me 10 points, I'm gonna give you two, but how, what her theology was, I said, yeah, I think, that, that's how, I think that's really a lot of us here. She says, my theology as a Christian for years was, you go to God as a last resort. And, you know, I try to figure it out, I make my plans, and then I go to God with the plan. That's not weakness. That's your, you've got control, you've got the power, it's all clear. And another theology was that God applauds efficiency. And God, not that we're being inefficient, but efficiency by get it done and make it happen. And it's very opposite of the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. It's so small you can barely see it. It takes 750 mustard seeds to make even one gram. It's as small as Jesus. The kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. You can barely see it. It's almost invisible, and it moves very slowly. That's why you don't want to miss it. Who would have ever dreamed that baby in the in the manger was going to transform the world. Who would ever think by you choosing weakness is going to change your family, your friends, the people around you, and bring Christ to the world? If us as a church choose weakness, it's going to impact a great global city like New York. You say, never. They'll laugh at us. God says, no, no. The way of the cave is to choose weakness in order to love people. You go the opposite direction of everybody else. And I tell you, when Emma gave me her list, I said, oh, my goodness. You know, I know you're saying, great, Pete. That's great. I'm a lawyer. I'm an entrepreneur, you know what, I'm a social worker, I'm a teacher, I'm in the stock market, I'm in sales, I am not a butterfly collector. I am out there in the real world. I don't work in a church, okay? And the reality is, if you ask me to choose weakness, I will get stepped on as a doormat and will never survive. And uh, others, you say, I'm tired of being a doormat, I've been beat up my whole life and I'm going to make it known now that those days are over to everybody. And that's what some of us are right now. We're not going to be weak anymore. We're making it clear why I got my boundaries. We love boundaries. It's a good class. I will not be weak. I will not be weak to anyone. You know, just a little comment here. The great thing is if you get this, you can be weak for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. You know, the prayer of Jabez sold 20 million copies, I'm told. You know, 1 Chronicles 4, 9, and 10. 92-page books, and he said, if you pray this prayer for 30 days, a simple prayer will hold the key to abundant life, and miracles will happen, etc., etc. And, you know, it's biblical. It's a good prayer. Supernatural, the supernatural will follow you wherever you go, and it's okay. I mean, it's not a, it's, there's some good truth in the book, but I'm just letting you know, the American culture loves that book. There are two obscure verses in the Bible. We don't know anything else about Jabez, but we do know a lot. We know a lot about the cross. We know a lot about weakness. It's in the incarnation and the crucifixion. It's in the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In Revelation, they overcome the Roman Empire through death and through the lamb who was slain. The opposite of the world's methods. But that wouldn't sell a lot of books. This sermon will not sell a lot of tapes. <laughs> All right, I'll pay for it. All right, let me close with this. It's like you choose weakness today and it's done. It's something we do every day to choose it. And uh, because unless I have the mind of Christ, I will never do this. You will walk out of here and you will forget what I have said by 3 o'clock. And you'll say, whatever that was about, maybe it was good, but who cares? Because this is so contrary to everything around us and actually our flesh inside of us to choose weakness in order to love people. So I'll mention just two things I mentioned last week. Why don't you pull them down? Let's put them both up. That I think the only way we'll choose weakness is that we get the mind of Christ through engaging in spiritual disciplines. 
How do I die daily to my tendency to worldly power, Herod? The truth is our families, for some of us, our parents have given their whole lives that we would live in Herod's palace, especially those that come from immigrant parents. That was our whole dream, was that we would live in Herod's palace, not that we would go to a cave. So it's almost like we're being disloyal by choosing a cave. It's the very opposite of what generations happens in our family. So it's going to take spiritual disciplines of prayer and scripture and Sabbath and worship where I get the mind of Christ because the only place you're going to get the mind of Christ is from Jesus. The New York Times won't give it to you today. Sorry. But my self-perception needs to be based on the gospel. I'm not inferior to anybody. I'm not superior to anybody. I don't have to prove anything to anybody because I know that I'm loved by God. Jesus loved, lived for me and died for me and rose again, and my worth and value is I'm made in his image. I've been adopted as his son and daughter. That's why I've got to saturate myself in the gospel. I say, wait a second, you know what? I lost my job, and I'm making now $50,000 less than I was making last year, but you know what? It's okay because I have dignity and worth. Yes, I feel sad about it, but you know what? I'm not devastated because my worth and value, you don't like me anymore, my worth and value is not based on that. I have worth and value based on Jesus. So now I'm free to love you. I'm not trying to get my power off of you. I got it from God. I'm free. So I'm free to choose to be weak before you and honest and vulnerable and soft so I can love you. I'm thinking about loving you, not proving something to you. I'm thinking about you and not about me and how I appear to you. I can go into Christmas and a dinner and, and relationships and think about loving people there and not be thinking all about myself and how do I appear? Am I holding on to my stuff? Am I holding on to my reputation, my image? I'm free. It's choosing the cave, but that comes from saturating yourselves in the gospel and then secondly, a radical community and insula finding one, two people who are living this kind of a radical life of weakness and not strength. It's a sad thing when we as a church are operating out of the same strength values as the world. But the wonderful thing is that sometimes we may get captured and seduced by the world. Our insula, our insulation is crummy, but we want to find one or two people say, you know what, I, I, I need to pray. I want, may God help us to walk this out by his grace. So here's the question I want to ask you in the next 48 to 72 hours. What is it going to mean for you to choose weakness? What's one thing, one thing you can do to choose weakness to love versus being protective, invulnerable, proud, and Herodian-like? Because the opposite of not having to exercise power over people is now you can love them because you're free. And so I want you to take a moment and I'd like you to ask you to bow your heads. The worship team come forward. I'd like to invite you to think about that. What is one way, one relationship where I don't have to exercise power over people, maybe your spouse, maybe a good friend, maybe your parents, a brother, a sister, Father, you know that we are all under great pressure the next 48 to 72 hours with many commitments and expectations on us. But Lord, I pray that you would grant us now by the Holy Spirit a revelation 
you'd give us spiritual glasses, 3D glasses to see what life is really about. That we don't have to play games. We don't have to prove anything to people. We can enjoy your gifts that you give us. And for some of us, it is education and wealth and many good things. And we've been blessed. But that we don't find our identity in these things any longer. But we choose weakness, Lord. Just like the Magi did, who were wealthy and brilliant astrologers, who came and bowed down at the feet of Jesus to worship. If you're here this morning, to become a Christian is a weak thing to do. It's a very weak thing to do to become a Christian. Say, I need forgiveness. I need help. I need a Savior. My sins are so bad, someone needs to die for I deserve to die for my sins. But I accept Jesus who died on my behalf. That's a very weak thing to do. If you've not done that, I want to invite you to do it right now. Invite Jesus in your life and say, Lord, I need you. I am weak, really weak. That's the truth. And Father, may we as a people live weakly as Christians. And may we not copy the world, but may we be free to follow the way of Jesus to a cave and to reject the seduction of Herod. In Jesus' name. Please stand with me. I invite you to sing this song as a response and a closing. To fall on my